If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is brought to you by Mountain Tough and Yeti. A lot of the tactics I talk about here require you to be in top physical shape. So I partnered with Mountain Tough to help get you ready for the mountain. With their science-based hunter-specific training app, you'll get in shape and mentally tough, able to tackle any hunt. Because we really believe this will help you be more successful, as a listener to this podcast, we're giving you six free weeks to get you started. Just use code LIVEWILD. Yeti's been a longtime supporter of mine and has some of the best products out there, including their just released 15 and 60 Go boxes. These are durable, stackable, dust and watertight storage that's great for organizing and transporting all your favorite gear to and from the field. I actually got to test some of these this past season and put them through the paces traveling from hunt to hunt. It kept my stuff accessible and protected. Practical in so many situations, from raft trips down the river to elk camp in the Rockies, it's nearly indestructible go-anywhere storage that's now available. Well, everyone, thank you so much for calling in and welcome back to the Live Wild podcast. This is our live call-in Q&A. Now, if this is your first time calling in or you aren't familiar with it, the way we like to run it is uh, if I pick up your call, just feel free to give me your name, where you're from, and then we'll jump right into your hunting questions. I'm really excited this week as well because I've got an awesome prize for one lucky caller. I've got a pair of Schnee's Kestrel boots. Now, these are a, a more of a low-profile boot, but they're really good for early season, warm weather, if you want to go light and fast. The thing I like about them a lot is the fact that they are so light, but they're also really good for that rough country. Some people, I know a lot of guys, my brother is one of those guys that prefers a shorter boot or a mid-height boot. This is a really good boot for you, uh, if that's you, because it, it still has a lot of the support that you need for that rough country, long trails in, long pack outs, but is a lot lighter to wear as well. So really awesome boot, really excited to be able to give that away. And if you're calling in, so you should be able to hear all the questions. I'll get to some questions as well. And then for the callers that are on today, I've also got something a little special at the end. So just feel free to, to wait on the line and we'll get to that at the end. But let's jump in here now and we'll go to our first caller. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking with? Hey, this is uh, Victor. I'm from the um, Hobby Desert of California. Right on. How's it going, Victor? Oh, man, doing well just kind of finishing up my work day here perfect well uh what uh what kind of question you got yeah so uh so i'm a um last year was my very first year uh hunting i didn't have any um kind of any upbringing in hunting but something i always wanted to do um with my father he passed a couple years ago um so i just decided to go ahead and create a plan and, and kind of get to it um the thing that i ran into last year and i, I did harvest deer in the mojave preserve um, but I had a second over-the-counter deer tag in uh, Southern California, 
uh, San Gabriel Mountains. And I spent 12 days uh, up most mountains not finding a single mule deer, uh, a single buck. But what, what I kept running up to was uh, was not having enough access to water and, and not really understanding where where the water was in a, in a very, like, waterless uh, desert mountain scenario. Uh, so my question is, like, how, like, once you find some water, how far away are do mule deer typically stay from that water? Are they, are, do they stay relatively close? Um, and how, how do I hunt in like a drier scenario? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, sorry to hear about your dad passing. And, you know, when it comes to like, it, it, it really depends. So I'm not really familiar exactly where that mountain range is, but there's a few things that you run into with mule deer. Now, when we're talking about, say, northern, uh, it, like northern Arizona, uh, maybe even like Nevada, New, certain parts of New Mexico, those mule deer are in the mountains, and and of course where you're at, mule deer are in the mountains as well. But as we move further south, well, like as so, as so we get into that Sonora Desert country, the mule deer actually prefer the more flat country. So they'll be in those big expansive flats. It doesn't look like much for country, but that's where a lot of deer are living as well. So you might be in the mountains and that might not actually be the best mule deer habitat for exactly where you are. Uh, and it's kind of counterintuitive. The first time I experienced this, I was like, I'm looking up in the mountains and not seeing any mule deer. And I, I was on a glassing knob and I turned my gaze around, start glassing down in the valley and I start picking out bucks. It's, it's a hard way to hunt because it's hard to find landmarks and some of that stuff's thick in those valleys. Uh, but that's surprisingly where the deer are. Now, when it comes to water, I mean, deer can travel, especially in that, that flatter country or in that desert country, something it might take us forever to get to in the mountains or whatever. It, it's nothing for deer. I've seen deer bed up um, in, in just a different, just as an example. Uh, there was water in one spot I was hunting and it was down kind of in a valley situation. But in this particular instance, they were setting up on the mountain. They would climb 4,000 vertical feet to bed and then just drop down for water like it was nobody's business. Three, I think it was probably like three or four miles. And they would do that nearly every day or they did a circuit that I didn't know about. So finding water is one thing, but on these, on these herds where they can move a lot and they might move a lot, that might mean that they aren't necessarily right tied to that water. Now, the other thing is they might have other water sources you don't know about and they're making circuits. So you think that like, okay, so you actually find them near that water because they're in and around that water when they're there and then they move on and, and go to another spot and they might be back two or three days later. So they might be constantly moving too. That's, that's also an option. From uh, places that I've hunted, you know, Southwest where I've been able to put trail cams on, on water sources, you might find too where, hey, there's places where the water's really far apart and they're, they're really consistently using this one water source. It may not mean that, you know, maybe they're using it every day. Maybe they're using it at night sometimes. That's another way to kind of gauge if it's legal where you're hunting, whether it, when and what waters they're using. Because you might go, oh, there's no deer here, but I see tracks. Okay. Uh, when are they hitting this water? And it's probably at night. Gotcha. Okay. Right on. Well, thank you. So I hope that helps. Um, yeah. Gives a little clarity to kind of some of the, the things in that. And, and I, I'm kind of expecting that maybe where you're hunting, I mean, there, there probably will be deer in those mountains. Um, it's not to say that they aren't, uh, but sure. you might find more deer in those flats, especially if it's that thicker uh, kind of cactusy, maybe mesquite ridden flat country. 
you probably yeah. will find the majority of the the mule deer there. You know, California is interesting because I, off the top of my head, I think they have like something like seven subspecies of mule deer. You know, and so those desert mule deer or the burrow mule deer tend to like those those flat areas and they they do move a lot but the thing is if the water is really few and far between they're probably using that one water source and then dispersing uh dispersing from there gotcha okay yeah i'm I'm hunting those like desert mountains just south of like las vegas uh, just over across the border from uh from nevada okay yep yeah i mean even in that country it's you know you you will find deer in the mountains but you know, finding those places where there's cover and then don't be afraid to glass the flats as well. Gotcha. Right on, man. Well, thank you so much for your help. I really appreciate it. Appreciate the podcast, man. Yeah, thanks for calling in. Oh, my pleasure. All right, we're going to jump to our next caller here. Welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hi, uh, this is uh, Sam from Wisconsin. How's it going, Sam? Uh, pretty good. What's your uh, What's your question? Hey, so... um. Uh, I'm pretty excited. Uh, this year I got my first uh, elk tag uh, to go out west, and I was kind of in a scramble um, to grab a tag. Uh, I kind of grabbed a tag last minute in Idaho, and I didn't really end up with the unit I wanted, but a big descriptor was, like, they describe a lot of the unit as, like, very, like, rough and rugged. And so my, my kind of question was like, like when you're in that like real, like steep country, like what are maybe like certain kind of like terrain features to like look for or like main areas that they might want to be at country is like really, really rough and there's not more like moderate terrain, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, you kind of can use topography a little bit in this situation. There are a lot of really steep, rough units in, well, I mean, throughout the West. And there are elk in there. Uh, you know, what the places that I would gravitate toward are going to be like those ridges, uh, finger ridges coming off, because the ridge is going to be like a little bit more mild portion of that terrain. And then I'm also going to be looking for any of those pockets or basins where there's maybe a su- southern exposure where it's got good grass feed or maybe a big burn in there. Uh, where there's, you know, it opens up for good elk habitat, good feed as far as grass feed goes. And then, you know, just kind of picking the area, like you might find an area that's super steep, but here's a ridge that drops down and benches out. Even in the roughest, steepest country, there's flat spots. Like it it doesn't matter if it's the roughest mountain goat country or the, the steepest, whatever. There's spots and those spots lend themselves to bedding as well. So maybe find an area that has that, kind of topography where a, a ridge comes down and benches out for a little bit. Maybe it's got timber on it and it is maybe down like downhill and downwind of the prevailing wind. You've really got yourself a recipe for a bedding area. And those are going to be the areas that I focus in on. So a place where I've, it's got some Southern exposure, a place where I've got some finger ridges and ridges coming down where they're, they're going to probably, you know, move on those ridges or move those ridges. Cause some of the faces of that stuff might get cliffy, rocky. They get cliffed out a little bit. Not that they won't be on the face of the mountains but um you know finding those more gradual like the way that you'd want to walk up they're probably walking up those ways as well uh so that that's just something to think about um yeah and then if you don't mind um i had kind of uh another like piggyback question so um my unit or my my season is 
um, like earlier, um, like in September where it's going to be like warmer, are they typically like in the morning going to be trying to like kind of warm up on the south face, but then maybe like bed on the north face, like in those like shaded timber pockets? Yeah, definitely. They'll they'll definitely pick those real thick timber pockets probably on the on the northern faces for bedding. And then, you know, the nice thing about an early hunt, you're hunting in the rut. So it's a it's a rut hunt. Your primary tactic will probably be a combination of glassing and calling. There's going to be some elk that you can't see but can hear, and that's what you're going to be looking for. So, you know, don't don't discard that either because that's a really good time to hunt elk. And, and I, I mean, I can tell based on your questions where you're hunting and it can be tough. Like it, it's an area that has, you know, it's challenges, but I mean, I've hunted, I'm assuming it's going to be the same area and, or with people and we've had good success too. So you just kind of got to keep after it and know, like you got to keep your head down and keep grinding because you might not see elk. And then once you get into where they're at, you kind of got to cover that country and find those pockets. And, and honestly, you know, even in rough country, there's, there's places where there's people. And so you got to find those little pockets too, where you can get away and, and hunt elk being elk. And that's a little bit of the game as well. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, best of luck to you and keep me posted on how it goes. Oh, absolutely. All right. Okay, we're going to jump into our next caller here. It looks like a question might be about caribou hunting. Uh, Welcome to the Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, Remy, this is Reed from Michigan. Hey, Reed, how's it going? Good, how about you? Yeah, really good. So what's your question? So my question is, um, my old man is kind of nearing retirement and starting to think more about, you know, what kind of adventure hunts he can go on and caribou hunting is kind of at the top of the list for him. And since you've been on all sorts of different types of caribou hunts, I guess my question is if you could do one hunt for the rest of your life or only do one hunt, what type of caribou hunt would that be? Would that be a Newfoundland, a Greenland, something? something in Alaska or like a mountain caribou or something like that? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a tough question because, you know, every hunt's a little bit different. The cool thing about some of those Alaska hunts and Canada hunts is you're in the big mountains, you're packed in, you're a long ways away from anything, but sometimes those hunts too are are more physically, more physical exertion than maybe another kind of hunt. I would say it it depends on, you know, if, if you're talking about a hunt for your dad, you know, I think that I, I've never hunted mountain caribou. That is one that I, I would love to chase, but I have hunted caribou in Alaska quite often in multiple types. So I've hunted migration caribou as well as just more, I would consider it more of like resident herds in the mountains. Uh, the resident herds in the mountains is really fun. I would say it's the most challenging and that's probably similar to some mountain caribou hunting. I've seen them a lot chasing other stuff, but I uh, just never had to tag myself. And then the, the thing about the Alaska, like if you can get in on a, a good Alaska hunt where, you know, it's a, a migration style corridor hunt where you can be amongst the migrating bulls. It's a pretty cool experience. You, if you're in the right spot, you see a lot of caribou. Uh, you have a lot of opportunity. They are moving a lot. So you might like, you might see a real good one, but might not be able to like get there in time. And there's this, that kind of uh, issue with it you know and then uh, honestly the the greenland hunt that i did last year was extremely fun and i think in some ways like 
it was cool because you could find one and hunt it and they weren't moving around so much. And that one I would say is very doable for kind of anyone once you've gotten there. Like um, the mountains mm-hmm. are big, but you can limit your hunting to however you want to hunt. And, and that's like a pretty good hunt if you don't want to do the like drop off middle of nowhere tent camp thing. So, I mean, it's still the middle of nowhere. You're in like a hut. <laughs> You're, that's actually, I would say Greenland is more middle of nowhere than most of the places in Alaska. Very difficult to get to, uh, very logistically challenging. The nice thing about the Alaska hunt is it's just like, it's more set up for hunting really. Like it's more set up for dropping your meat off somewhere or bringing uh, antlers back. Like there's just a lot less logistical problems with it. So I don't know. It's hard to beat Alaska. The trouble is, man, a lot of those hunts are getting hard to to find, you know, and I've said it like somebody told me this many years ago is like, if you want a caribou hunt in your lifetime, do it now. And I, I heeded that advice and, and went on my first caribou hunt. And it's very true. I've noticed over the years, the access to caribou hunting is rapidly decreasing. The price is rapidly increasing. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if it's something you're thinking about, yeah, really look into it. And, and there are a few guides out there that have things, those dro- the, the days of like caribou drop camps and good areas is getting few and far between, unfortunately, because they're shutting seasons down and the access is very limited to it. That was a long way of saying like, it depends on the kind of hunt you're looking for really, but that's just kind of laying out all the options, you know, it's like, it's crazy though. I mean, I know like woodland caribou in Newfoundland that you could, you know, you used to be able to book that hunt for like 3,200 bucks. And now I've looked and seen that they're like almost $30,000, like more than a sheep hunt. It's crazy what like caribou, how the landscape of caribou hunting is changing because the, the opportunities are extremely limited now. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, great information thanks for thanks for sharing that and i think as yeah. far as what type of hunt he's looking for he has shared with me that he wants a challenge he doesn't want something that's you know like too easy or i guess looking he thinks that maybe looking over a lot of game means you can just kind of like pick anyone you want and shoot it but i think not really realizing that you're looking to find a good representative species and something that you you know be proud to take home instead of just any old you know caribou that of course you can say that you killed one but some something that you need to work for some uh larger animal or something like that is i think what he'd he'd like to get yeah and to be 100 percent honest i've been on plenty of caribou hunts that didn't go great <laughs> you know like you're <laughs> like oh yeah this will be good and oh well we had no visibility for 10 days I mean, that happens. There's, it's like very hard to hunt a lot of that country if you can't see. And that's something you run into on any Northern hunt, uh, weather visibility. I mean, I know a lot of guys that have been weathered out of hunts, weathered in hunts, you know, like even just maybe you're in an area and Hey, if the animals aren't there, they aren't there. And that's, uh, that is also a factor as well. And then the, the mountain kind of thing is, I would say less, it was a lot more difficult, like a backpack hunt in the mountains for him. It's a lot more difficult, but I would say also, you know, more consistent with where the caribou are because you can kind of continue to move yourself until you find them. Uh, so there's a lot of options when it comes to caribou hunting, and it's a really fun hunt. I definitely, I, I definitely think you'll enjoy yourself no matter which which one you do. Really. Well, good, awesome. Thanks for the information. Yeah. Well, best of luck to you, and keep me posted on how it goes. Yeah, we'll do. All right. We're going to go another question here. I think this might even roll in. It looks like questions about hunting in Alaska. Welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, this is Justin from South Dakota. Um, 
just hey Justin. First of all, thank you, Remy, for all you do. Really appreciate all you do for uh, hunters and uh, all the questions you keep constantly ask or answer for us. It's awesome. Yeah, well, appreciate it. Thanks. I, I I enjoy doing it. It's a lot of fun. You know, anytime we get to talk hunting, <laughs> I'm having a good day. <laughs> you bet. You bet. Say, um, I got extremely lucky and uh, got drawn in a raffle with one twenty dollar ticket for an Alaskan brown bear hunt this fall, and um, truly once in a lifetime opportunity for me. I'll never be able to buy that hunt. So, um, want to take full advantage of it, but I've never flown for a hunt and i've always traveled you know drove everywhere i was going to go mountain hunting bear hunting on mountains elk etc but uh i know we're on the peninsula and weather is always an issue in alaska no matter where and just wondering you know if you have any tips and tricks for traveling um you know outfitters talks a lot about guys taking out early what's it like to try and bump a flight up uh, if that case were to happen where you get, you know, if you happen to get tagged out, um, I don't really have a tack on species to be able to get that time of year, except for wolves. So just kind of, if there's any kind of advice or tips or tricks you got for first time guys flying for big game hunt like this and, um, what that looks like, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, congratulations on winning that tag. And, and, you know, honestly, like, uh, I think that people sometimes overlook, the a, a raffle or a draw like that as a means to getting a hunt but as a western hunter it's like almost all of our hunts are a raffle of some kind it's just a state-sponsored raffle or a, a, an organization raffle you know and, and it is actually a good way to get into some kind of hunt you got to be lucky like anything but when it does happen it's it's an incredible feeling i've personally drawn uh sheep hunts before and it's like the most unbelievable feeling. You're like, wow, I never thought I'd get to do this. And then you're, then you're, Hey, you're there for kind of the same thing, a, a $20 ticket. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty cool, cool feeling. I, I was getting prank called by my buddies. Like, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, no way. <laughs> and no, no, really, oh, yeah. you know, this is so-and-so from Alaskan or from the wild sheep foundation. I'm like, Oh man. <laughs> So, right on. yeah, I mean, uh, that's cool. Yeah. Like I said, I, I drive everywhere across the States, but, uh, you know, someday I want to go international, but um, just, you know, Alaska and getting in, getting out, and what's it like moving flights up if if that opportunity arises too? You know, so I, I mean, I, especially when I'm going to Alaska, but on most hunts, I kind of uh, always try, well, where I fly from, it, it works well, but I always try to fly Alaska Airlines. There's a couple reasons for that. I feel like out of the state of Alaska, they are... I mean, every airline in Alaska deals with hunters and fishermen all the time, so they're used to it. A couple of the things that I liked about Alaska Airlines was one time my, like, locks broke on my gun uh, case, and they had wow. another – they just have, like, gun cases there that they'll sell you, and they essentially sell them for cost. So I got a better gun case than I got, and it was, I think, $150 <laughs> cheaper than I would have got in store. They're like, yeah, it's 80 bucks. I was like, it's a really nice hard-sided SKB case or something, and I still have it. I use it to this day. I mean, I was like, oh, I'm glad that my lock broke on that. I mean, they just have, like, that those things in mind for hunters. They also have cold storage in a few of their 
hubs. So if you're flying back with meat or hides or something like that, maybe you won't be, maybe you're shipping everything. That doesn't really matter to you, but you know, just as for other people thinking about it, when I go on a hunt, it's nice to have everything that know like, okay, it's going to, like once it's sitting, if it's sitting on tarmac, they'll go throw it in the freezer for you, which is incredible. You just have them put a frozen sticker on it and they'll go throw that thing in the freezer while you're in between your flights, uh, which is pretty awesome. But they, they ship a lot of fish and meat and other stuff too. So they're used to that. And then the other thing is, you know, you, you just get a flight that has those, I would say I plan my trips this way. So on my way there, I make sure that I'm early. So no travel delays happen because uh, depending on the schedule, like you could be there and I would rather be there and waiting on them than them waiting on me. You don't know what the weather breaks are going to be. And sometimes if you're there, it's like, Hey, crappy weather's coming in. We aren't going to, we either got to go now or something is not going to go. I like to show up early. So I, I get in a day or whatever early, however early I need to be to make sure that if there's a travel delay or anything like that, it's not going to hinder the dates that we have planned for the hunt. And if something happens, we need to get out early, we can. And then, you know, whatever happens on the way back, that just happens. Like you, if you end up having to accidentally stay longer because the uh, flights are like, you can't get back to the airplane just because of weather or whatever, you know, you can always figure that out later, but getting there is, is the most important thing. And then getting home is the easy part. I always book like for a return. I'll just do, they've got like flexible tickets. So you just get the flex ticket. And even on some things you can like day of, you can always make changes. Um, but yeah, just do the flexible ticket and it's pretty easy to, to kind of figure that out once you get there. As long as they've got flights, it's pretty easy to hop on another flight and go out early or later. They're pretty good about it. Okay, great. Yeah, I plan on getting in early. Um, and I'm certainly not in a rush to get out of Alaska. I mean, I've never been there before. So um, I just, uh, he was making it sound like a lot of guys get, you know, shot opportunities in the first couple of days and then you may have to come out early for weather. Well, I mean, I've dealt with late before, but never dealt with coming out early and just, sitting in cold bay alaska where <laughs> not much to do if i tag out so i just didn't know how that worked. yeah and they're they're you know they're pretty used to like flexible stuff there but sometimes sometimes there aren't flights and, and you're just you're just sitting on a tarmac just hanging out you know <laughs> i mean i've i've sat at many small communities for a lot longer than i would have liked um and you're just like you're like all right i mean here my suggestion is this also now this is probably the best pro tip you'll ever get when i go to alaska or canada or some far off place that might have i might be stuck in a community or something like that i always bring like a packable fishing rod i get a fishing license and i have some tackle because I don't know how many times I have been just stuck there and go, oh, there's nothing to do, but there's a river nearby and I have some incredible fishing. Some of my best fishing memories are just from days waiting in some remote place. Uh, I mean, I've caught species I've never caught before, Dolly Varden and Arctic Char and Northern Pike. And you just never know. Um, there's generally some fishing around some of those places. So if you got a little bit of that kind of equipment, just something small, something light. Like you can have a lot of fun when everybody else is bored sitting in uh, some kind of barrack or something like that. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, thanks for taking the time to answer my question. I really appreciate it. Yep. Well, best of luck to you and uh, keep me posted on how the bear hunt goes. Will do. Thanks, Remy. All right. Have a good one. All right. We're going to jump into our next question here. Who am I talking to? 
Hey, this is AJ from Colorado. Hey, AJ, how's it going? Good, man. Hey, thank you so much for doing this. This is awesome. Um, so I hunt a basin that we've had success in. Um, we've seen elk in, but specifically there is a north east facing slope that has pockets of meadows with wallows that stretch at least a half a mile. And when we go in there during season, um, we haven't had success in the wallows, but you know, we smell elk, we see sign stretched all through there. And I just get overwhelmed. I don't even know where to start hunting these wallows. Like, I just don't know a plan of attack. I mean, it just seems like they cut there in all of them. So I just, you know, I go in there and I just, I, I could sit one, but I feel like I'm missing out on so much more going on around me. So I'm just curious what your plan of attack would be in that situation. Yeah, generally my plan of attack would probably be to not necessarily anticipate sitting on a wallow. I mean, you definitely could, but I think I would probably be more of the like seek and find kind of strategy. And I'm assuming, I can't remember if you mentioned it or not, but you're hunting in September, correct? Like during the rut? Yeah. Yeah. During September. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, in those places, like it can be a good concentration, but there might even, I, there's a place that I hunt pretty consistently and it's very similar to exactly what you're describing. It's a, it's a high Alpine area. It's got timber around kind of flat country, big meadows, big wallows in the middle of this thing. And then like two miles away, there's another one just like that. And on the other side of the Ridge, there's one like, and so it's just not like all of them seem like they're getting signed. Most of them are probably getting used at night. And so it's hard to actually pinpoint where they're at. So I use more of calling strategy, kind of sticking to the timber and then hunting the edges and trying to catch those elk, like trying to hear those elk before they pop out. Now, if I'm, I'm hunting and I'm observing them using a specific wallow, because what they will do is they're, as the things heat up, they start to use those wallows more and more and more, and they're using them, um, you know, to, to roll around, but kind of as a scent station. So the ones sure. that hit the most start to really reek. And, and so those ones that really start to stink are probably the ones that are going to get used more. And it's not a bad tactic to be waiting on them, but I hear you like sitting there and you go, nothing came in today. Are they using one just over the Ridge? Are they using one somewhere else? Am I wasting my time? Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not one to just sit around anyway. I mean, we're pretty mobile and active. So I like, I like the strategy that you have anyway, a little bit better. Yeah. And I mean, there are times where I'm like the times that I kind, it's funny because like wallows are probably the most productive when things start to crank up, but most hunters prefer to hunt them when things are slow. Um, and so it is kind of counterintuitive and counterproductive. And I, I even fall into that. Like if I were to sit a wallow or hunt specifically one wallow, I generally do it like the first week of the season when nothing's really going on anyways, when they aren't really fired up and that might be like a strategy too, but for me, it, it's kind of tough to to do that if I don't have one that's just a slam dunk. You know, sure. I, I've I've like my brother has done it um, successfully, and it was more of like a water like they're using it more as a water hole early. So he was he had a, a tag in an area that opened like end of August, and um, they were using it more as a water hole. And he's had he had some giant bulls come in because they're using it to water. But as the rut kicked on, then it just got less productive because they're they're running around, they're doing their thing, and it's just probably better to be out there chasing them. Okay. Well, that's perfect. So, yeah. 
Well, good luck, and uh, yeah, it sounds like it sounds like a good honey hole, though. Either way, it is. Yeah, yeah, we've had success. So we actually, I mean, I appreciate your podcast in the past too. There was actually two seasons ago, dead silent in there. We knew there were elk in there, and I had a couple podcasts uh, downloaded, and they were of yours of the silent bulls. And we just set up one night and listened to that podcast, and actually, basically followed step by step the next day and had success. So that was pretty awesome. So thank you. That's awesome. Yeah, no, appreciate it. And then, you know, another thing you can think about too, like maybe things are slow like that. I've had success. There's this one place where I used to guide in New Mexico and it was like we could hunt certain areas and there was this one exactly what you're describing. And so what what I would do is I would go in there and I'd make like a splash call. Like I would splash around in the water and do all my calling from that wallow there is to start things off. Because like if I didn't hear them, that's where I would wait. And, you know, with, with, within reason of like, you wouldn't spook something, right. But like making that noise, like something's in there and bugling and then later on making those calls and, and I actually had quite a bit of success calling elk into that specific wallow as opposed to the six or eight other ones around there thinking like, oh, this one's active. We better check this out. So, you know, just making your presence known and making elk think that you're another elk using that can, can pay off. Awesome. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it, Remy. Yep, appreciate it. Yeah, have a good one. Hey, you too. All right, let's jump into another caller here. Welcome to the podcast. Who am I talking with? Hey, Remy, this is uh, Stephen. I'm from northern Idaho. Awesome. Uh, thanks for calling, Steve. Or Stephen. Mm-hmm. I know I- some people go by Steve, <laughs> some people go by Steve. You should uh, probably always address people as how they address themselves, I guess. <laughs> So I got a question for you about uh, arrow selection. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm shooting, right now I'm shooting an older uh, Fred Bear bow. It's pretty old, pretty slow shooting. Um, and I'm shooting 60 pounds out of it with a about a 28-inch draw, maybe closer to 29-inch draw. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, but somewhere in there. And I'm trying to, you know, I'm yep. thinking about shooting some heavier arrows. Um, and I'm just looking for some input on that. Because, you know, all the information I see on or on these fast new compounds. So seeing if you got any input on that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it just depends like how far you think you want to shoot the bow and what kind of energy you're getting out of it currently. I don't, do you know the weight of your arrow you're currently shooting? So I'm shooting like a really old setup. I haven't used it in a long time. So I'm trying to buy some new arrows. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, are the are the arrows you're shooting out of it currently like aluminum arrows, or are they are they carbon? Fiber? No, there's some carbon fiber. They're like four years old. Okay, some high, some that yep. I shot in high school. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the the thing about it is, you know, you you kind of you just want to match your setup to your bow in some ways, but also, like, mm-hmm. I I think that the testament to a little bit heavier arrow setup is a couple of things like maybe you go like i I don't need to shoot real far you're going to get a lot more drop because if it's an older bow it's probably shooting slower uh it doesn't have as much energy this that and the other thing right um but when i think about my recurve setup i shoot a pretty heavy arrow out of it and it does really well and i don't have a lot of uh it doesn't have a lot of energy but it gets better penetration than probably a lot of people with a light arrow and a fast uh compound setup so that's the the benefit to having that heavier arrow especially with a little bit slower bow as you can you can kind of get a little bit better penetration with that increased kinetic energy now 
you, you know, you're obviously going to slow your arrow down a lot as well. So there is that give take of you're slowing it down. So it's kind of a weird balance between the two, but I would say that you, you wouldn't go wrong with kind of picking an arrow that's a little bit heavier or a little bit heavier setup. It just depends on, I would just kind of see, you know, if, did you have problems with the arrow that you were shooting before? No, I just didn't have a lot of them and I just wanted something new. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, and I, mean, I moved I from the Midwest the out here. So going from deer to okay. elk. So. Yep. Yeah. If it was me and I have like a, a, an older setup or whatever, I mean, I've killed, like, I'm looking at, I've got like my, a couple bows that just went into retirement. It's like the racehorse that gets to live in the pasture. It just sits on my wall for the, for a long time. But this is one, one of my favorite bows of Matthews LX. And it's not, I mean, it's probably 20 years old now, which it still seems like a pretty good bow. I shoot it every once in a while. And, you know, I killed plenty of animals with it with uh, just a standard, it was like Thunderhead, three blade broadheads. And I think I started, I think I, yeah, that was the first bow I started using carbon arrows out of. And, you know, it, and it works really well. But if I was, if I was to shoot that bow today on a hunt, I think I would prefer to, to use a two blade setup. Cause I know I'd get better penetration and a little bit heavier arrow. Cause when I started shooting that mouth tab, I still shot a pretty heavy arrow for the setup. And I got pass throughs on elk with a 55 pound or a 60 pound bow. Was it set at, at that time? I think I bumped it up to 60, but I got pass throughs on a mule deer at 55 pounds. Like, so I was still getting pass throughs with a two blade and a heavier arrow. And that was a fairly slow bow compared to what I'm used to. So that's just something to think about. Okay. And I got a follow up question if I can ask real quick, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, so what I'm doing is I'm going to probably get some day six arrows, I'm thinking. And I ordered yep. a couple of their test kits with different spines, kind of play with that a little bit and stuff. And I got some different test uh, field points. So I got like a bunch of different combinations of things I could try out, you know. So I was kind of thinking I might play with the weight, try to go for like a desired weight, play with that a little bit. And if I'm doing that, what should I look for when I'm shooting? Oh, like to see which, which one is the better one for your setup? Yeah, just like I'm saying, like weight wise, and like I, I've already talked to a friend about spine, you know, what I'm kind of looking for yep. there, particularly right spine. But if I was looking for like weight wise, you know, is there anything that you'd be looking for? I mean, obviously drop and just like, you know, how far I'm going to be shooting out to, stuff like that. But I'm just kind of curious if you got any, any opinion on that. No, I mean, it, it kind of just depends on like what I do when I'm setting it up is I kind of figure out like what's my threshold for, you know, how far my sight can go and the kind of drop that I'm like, ah, this is a little too much. Cause I, I've taken a setup and gone like really heavy with the arrow for certain hunts and then, and then go add, ah, it's just too much drop for me personally for other hunts. So then I'll lighten up that arrow setup and, and just find the balance that way. And then the other thing is for, for playing around with the weights and the spines, if you want to go heavier, you can change this, you know, you're going to change the spine by adding the weight or a subtracting weight. So you just want to make sure that whatever you're shooting tunes right so mm -hmm. if, you, if you've got one that you're like this is the weight i want but it doesn't tune because the, then you can kind of adjust the spine and then adjust the tip and that's what the that kit's kind of for is to find like the mm -hmm. weight that you want but mostly to find the one that tunes the best like so you need to match that weight and that tune if that makes sense so that it kind of plays with that spine a little bit in yep, there. So, yeah you want to make sure yeah you want to make sure that like i think first and foremost every bow needs to be paper tuned well and broadhead tuned well. And when you've got that combo 
dial, you can do anything. Like it's just, you can shoot whatever tips you want. You can really just like, you've got a good setup and it, and it feels good. And, and you have like a lot less uh, factors that kind of make the shot go off wrong. So like you can, it kind of accounts for a little bit of bad body positioning and stuff like that. So cool. Well, it sounds like you're, you're on your way to figuring it out and yeah, I think I think that you can't go wrong with a little bit heavier setup. I've, I mean, I like it. Uh, it's it's what I kind of promote because I've used it for a while now. I've used all kinds of stuff, and there's honestly like pluses and minuses to everything. So you just kind of figure out what you really like, and that's that's the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what my friend was kind of saying too. He uses a cab bow setup, and he's like, "Well, your flow compound's still shooting faster than my cab bow, and we're shooting heavy arrows." Yep. So exactly, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a tried and tested uh, method that works pretty well is heavy arrows and slow bows still kill stuff so it works good okay well awesome thanks Remy. yep have a good one yep you too all right we're gonna get in a few more callers here hey welcome to the live wild podcast who am i talking to hey how's it going yeah pretty good how are you doing good where uh where are you calling in from today oh i'm calling in north idaho sorry yeah, North Idaho. My question was, I was going to be, I mean, I know you talk about it a lot, just picking a camping spot in grizzly country. Like what are you looking for? A little bit more open coverage or you pushing on kind of a finger ridge bench style type thing where, you know, you're not really um, worried about like visibility. Yeah. No, nah, you know, you I, I prefer, <clears throat> I prefer to put my, my camp setup where I've got a little bit of visibility, a little bit of visibility goes a long ways. You know, it's nice to be able to walk up, see your tent and know that nothing's getting into it or there. Also have visibility of wherever you're hanging your food or your meat or whatever is nice. And the other thing is like, I try not to put my tent in the middle of prime grizzly habitat. You know, I've seen people like, well, if you're in Alaska, it's like, I, I don't camp on salmon rivers, you know, I, I, I move yeah. up the mountain and wood camp on a ridge in that scenario. Now it might be something else where it's like, you're on a ridge above like this real thick alder patch below you. Well, your scent and everything's going to dump in there. If you get some blood in your pack and all that stuff and wind's blown right in there. Well, it's kind of a, it's kind of a warning sign. I don't put a lot of thought into it, but I am cautious about like, okay, this is a good spot. That's fairly defensible in some way. And if I'm showing up at dark or leaving in the dark, I am not going to get surprised. The The key is just to not surprise a bear really. And if you can do that, you're probably not going to get attacked. So that's, that's one nice thing about having it where you can see is you can kind of, it's a little bit more defensible in a lot of, in a lot of scenarios. Right on. Okay. Yeah. So obviously cooking away from camp, you're, uh, getting pretty serious about, um, putting your toothpaste and everything all stored away with your food. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I mean, I, but the other thing is like, it's just something that I've done and always done kind of thing. You know, you're like, you're a giant sack of meat sleeping in that tent too. So, uh, you know, I think most bears don't like smell humans and think food. Thankfully, I think maybe polar bears do, but, uh, I don't necessarily know if, if grizzlies (laughs) are at that point yet. Um, if we keep not being able to hunt them, they might, I mean, they're, they're nabbing enough bikers and hikers now that I think they might start like teaching their young that that's it. We're an easy target for sure. (laughs) Like if they caught on, they, they would probably be smart and they could just live off of hikers. But you know, for now I, I do like, 
the things that smell like food for a bear that's not habituated to humans, or maybe even a bear that is habituated to humans, something that they don't associate with food, or I mean, something that they associate with food, I try to keep away from where I'm sleeping. And to be honest, I haven't had a lot of like bad problems with bears in camp. And I kind of just always have done the same thing and it's always worked, you know, knock on wood. So uh, yeah. I'm just going to keep doing it. Only takes one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, right on. Cool. Yeah, no, I mean, we got a, we got a lot of good hefty amount of grizzlies in our area and that's the same thing. They, uh, they don't really care. They're not scary humans around here. You know, they what happens every year. It's just getting insane. Yeah, that's the thing I notice. Like, I mean, there's a lot of places in Alaska that I've been that are very, very remote. And when a, a grizzly bear gets your scent, he runs the other way. And I feel like in Montana and in some places in Idaho and Wyoming, it's like they'll catch your scent and they just do not care. And that's scary to me to like see that change of bears that just don't care about humans as a threat. And I don't know like why, I mean, there, probably there's places that I've been in Alaska that those bears aren't hunted. Maybe it's just, you know, I can't explain it. I don't know why that's just a anecdotal thing for me, but I, I feel like that is true. And I think we are seeing a rise in like people intersecting with bear country and there's a rise in attacks. But when you live in these places where there's bears, and you see how many people are now being attacked or mauled or charged or killed, you go, that's that's substantial for the per capita. Like if you ex- extrapolated that out into a large populated area, that's a lot of people getting attacked and charged and potentially killed by a bear. Uh, so I think that like we definitely are in need of some kind of change for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah, pretty crazy. Um, so spring bear... You're, with all the snow, I mean, you can barely get, you know, quarter way up the mile or quarter way up the mountain around here. The snow's so deep still. Are you uh, still just hiking in, snowshoeing, but trying to find some grassy areas, a little midway or wherever you can find them? Yep. Yeah, the nice thing about snow, and I, and I did a, I don't know if you caught it or not, either way, it doesn't matter, but um, did a podcast kind of all about bears in snow years. And the the nice thing about it is, you know, a lot of the years when there's no snow, there can be grass and feed in a lot of the timber. When the snow holds on, it limits the amount of places bears can feed. And I actually have some of the best bear seasons are on big snow years for me, spring bear seasons, um, because it limits the places that they're at. So they have to travel to those food sources. You'll see more bears in higher concentrations. And yeah, I do a lot more glassing from afar too, because I'll, I'll try to like, pinpoint multiple potential feeding areas which i know maybe hey there's fewer of them but i can get into a vantage where i can get that i'll get the big optics out and i'll sit there and i'll just watch all day and and i'll find the ones that are getting used because it seems like there will be ones that are just getting hit more i don't know if it's just better feed better what and it just starts to attract the bears so yeah wherever you can find that food is good and i think that it's probably a uh, better time to hunt because the bears are still hungry and there's a lot less food, so it limits the places that they might want to hang out. Right on. Yeah, just have to have the good button scope to actually identify between a grizzly and the black bear. Yep, exactly. Got on a, yeah. got on a grizzly last yeah. fall with my eight-year-old kid and then finally got on the tracks and <laughs> had to back out. Oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, it can be but, pretty sketchy. So, well, best of luck to you, man. And, uh, yeah, good luck out there. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. Have a good one. 
All right. I'm going to go into this call here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild podcast. Who am I talking to? I think you're talking to AJ from upstate New York. Yeah, I am. How's it going, AJ? I'm <laughs> doing pretty good. Hey, thanks for everything you do. Uh, I've been listening to you since I found you. Uh, it, it's got awesome. a lot of great advice. Well, thanks. Uh, Appreciate it. I do have a question slash, uh, I don't know what else you were going to call it, but I have an opportunity to hunt uh, elk in New Mexico in Area 57, I think it is. It's, all, it's, it's a guided hunt, a one-on-one hunt. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> now, luckily, I've got a year and a half to uh, train and plan for it. But any advice yeah. that you haven't given me already, I'd uh, greatly appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with that area in New Mexico. I'm area, I'm familiar with Area 57 in uh, Nevada, but uh, it's a, <laughs> a test base down there, uh, Nellis Air Force Base. That's that's all I know about that unit. You know, I think I'm pretty sure I I used to work pretty close to the. I'm pretty sure that that unit's primarily private, if I can remember right. I haven't yeah, hunted it, but yeah, I've I've been through it. And so, you know, I think one of the things like, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, I'm going on, a, is this your first elk hunt? Yes. Okay, so first elk hunt and a guided elk hunt is a great option, you know, so what can I do to, you know, benefit myself in this hunt? And I think there's a couple of things that, you know, when you're when you're on a guided hunt, right? There's a few things that are going to ring true as a as a guide. I've guided I don't even know thousands of hunters, and it's, it's over. I've guided for over 20 years now, and in multiple states and countries and in all kinds of things. And the one the two things that I would say would be the leading factor in success for those people is if they're in good shape and how well they can shoot whatever they've got. If those two things are on par their success just exponentially increases because the guys that, that that put in that time to be in good physical condition can do things that other people can't. And it, it whatever it is, right? And there's, I mean, there's hunts where, you know, I've been guiding in a camp and there's some guys that didn't put in that time and they go, oh, this is a terrible hunt. We haven't seen anything, this, that, and the other thing. Well, the guide is only hunting to their ability and that's the trouble. Like the guide can know where the elk are, but if you can't get there or you can't do it day in and day out, it a hundred percent, he's not a magic worker, right? Like he's, they're still elk, they're still wild. And so the things that you can do are to be in the best shape possible. And then whatever you're hunting with shoot really well. And, you know, I think that the other thing is having like, if it's a rifle hunt, you know, having the ability, like a lot of people that I would be like, I'm from New York. I, there's no ranges over a hundred yards. It's like, we'll be really good at a hundred yards. And then if you can get somewhere to test out your rifle at different yardages and and have a scope or whatever where it's got some kind oh, of no, no, no. you know way I'm to, going, to I'm, do going that. Ar- yeah. I'm going all archery. archery okay perfect yeah yeah I mean so and, you know just just shoot that bow and be so proficient with that bow that when your moment happens you can capitalize on it, it, it it's funny that uh you said you know about the guide today because I was actually in the gym listening to your podcast the what I should have could have episode and oh, yeah. uh, you're talking about the elk that the guy shot before you told him to shoot. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing. Listen to your guide, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and I feel, I feel like I'm in semi decent shape since, you know, I'm a retired military guy. So, uh, that's always a bonus. Uh, I'm awesome. not in that, that great shape anymore, but I, I still can hold my own. So, um, yeah, I, I, 
I'm at the gym and I I shoot every day I can. So, but I was just hoping to get some information about the area since I know that you do hunt in New Mexico. I didn't know if it's the same area or not. But yeah, yeah. Good. Unfortunately, I, I haven't hunted in that particular area, but you know, I'm sure you know. I think New Mexico is a great state for elk, and I'm hoping to pull a tag myself there this year. So we'll see how it goes. Well, luckily enough, I, I have a year and a half because. Uh, job uh dictates my schedule and this year wouldn't happen so i talked to the guy and he's like yep we can do it another we can do it next year you're number one on the hit list as far as uh when when uh the uh, rut starts you're number one he goes i only take two people out a year during this and you're on the you're number one so perfect well there you go uh cool sounds good man well appreciate the call and best of luck to you well, thank you very much, and you keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I, I'm jealous, envious, and uh, I appreciate everything you do. Now, well, thank you very much. All right. Well, we're going to go to one last caller here. I'm going to scroll through our list here. Who we got? All right. Welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? This is Russ from Southeast Idaho. Hey, Russ. How's it going, man? Good. How about you? Yeah, pretty good. Well, congratulations. You are the winner of our Schnee's Kestrel boots. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great pair of boots, and I think you'll, you'll really enjoy them. Let's go into your question, and then I'll tell you how to get your boots here in the end. Okay, sounds good. Thanks a bunch. I'm actually looking to get a pair of warm-weather boots. This is actually perfect. So thanks oh, again. Oh, awesome. Right on. Yeah, of course. So my question is, I'm planning on hunting a unit here in Idaho in October rifle hunt for elk and the same unit or same area is open for general archery in September. So I was wondering how could I use my approach or like to mule deer hunt archery in September, but kind of keep my eye out for where elk might be come October for my rifle hunt. Yeah, definitely. No, that's, that's a great strategy because when the elk are, are doing their thing and they're bugling and they're going crazy, it's the easiest to find them, to be 100% honest. Archery September is the, the easiest time to find elk. Now, as we start to transition into October, it gets a little tougher. Idaho is good because, not to put Idaho on blast here, but that rifle season's a little bit earlier than a lot of other places. So you're still going to catch elk that are in those still kind of rut behaviors and patterns and places that they were in September. Most of the elk that I've been on during the rifle season in, in Idaho have been because of elk that I've found in September. So when I'm deer hunting, I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention. I would bring a bugle, even if you can't, or like a call of some kind, maybe throw out some locator calls and just say like, where are they making noise at? Or just use listening and, and glassing and all those tactics and make note of where they are at and where their activity seems to be. And then, you know, find those, one of the things like find those pockets where there might be a little bit, you know, like big groups, but you know, a lot of activity because where those cows are is where the bulls are going to be. And what's going to happen as we get into October is those bigger bulls are going to start to break off. But a lot of the time in October, they're still around there. They just aren't in the middle of the herd all the time. So they kind of go in for like a, a, a little hay house things going mornings and evenings. And then 
bust off and, and go do their own thing in the middle of the day. And that's how we've killed some of the biggest bulls we take normally are those bulls that go in in that October. See, like you find them in September and then they, they're in there in October, but then they start to pull off on their own and they're still in that same general vicinity. So that's a really good way to scout out elk for that October season. And you're probably going to be deer hunting at the same time. The hard part is I find that when I really want to hunt deer, I'm in areas where there's deer and not as many elk. So you might look into a good elk spot, but if you got a little bit of time to maybe check some of those, you know, a little bit better elk habitat, depending on the unit, you know, some units they're right next to each other, but a lot of the places that I've hunted in the past, it's like elk are in one spot, deer in another. And yeah, you find one in one and one in the other, but not very often. So uh, if you get a little bit of time to pull away and, and maybe just check some really high octane elk zones, then I think that that'll benefit your rifle hunt a little bit later on. Okay. And I was also wondering, would it be true that, you know, early September before the rut really picks up and the elk are up higher, could it be true that if they leave the herd earlier, kind of in October, would they head to like them same high areas that if I seen them early September? Sometimes, but not always. You know, a lot of times, like once September hits, they start to like first part of the season will be up high. They can go up and that doesn't, it's not saying that they won't go back to those areas. Like sometimes they do for sure. But a lot of times once they're pulled down, like they might not be over the rut yet in some ways. Yeah, they will start to pull away into those other areas. It might be back where they were. I don't know if it'd be the exact same place. We've, we've tried to kind of test that in some ways of like elk do pop in, but they might be different elk that you find early September. Now, it just depends on where they're at. Because like there's some elk that will stay up in those areas and rut in those areas. And those are probably the elk that will still remain in those areas a lot longer. Um, depends on the type of unit too. If it's more of a migration area, areas that they move out of, if it's an area that they can winter, if it's a resident herd, that would play a bigger factor. So if it's a resident herd, I would say, yeah, it might be more likely. But I would probably say that you're where the elk kind of push to is within a thousand feet, like vertical feet, not necessarily like a thousand feet physical feet but like elevation band of like if during september here's where they're at i would say that they would probably push back up but not you know it just depends on the area i guess it's kind of hard to say but yeah you can definitely find them back in those basins too just bedded up by themselves i found a couple of years ago the biggest bulls i found were yeah in those big head basins essentially where they would have been in august so it depends a little bit on the weather too like last year we wouldn't have found that because it was 20 below and we had a foot and a half of snow on the ground so in mid-october so i guess it just depends on you know the season as well okay so your best recommendation is kind of find find all the herd activity and there's probably be bulls dipping in and out later in the into october yep i think so especially like that first like mid-october to kind of toward the end and then by like the like the end of October, then it's completely changed. They're either, then it's fairly weather dependent, but the bigger bulls are definitely going to be up higher and the last ones to leave. And then the smaller bulls, but more frequency of elk would be in that more mild country or winter range. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Thanks for answering the question. Perfect. I'll make sure to get those boots sent your way, get your sizes and everything. And we'll reach out and uh, connect with you. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Remy. Perfect. Appreciate it. Well, best of luck and, and good hunting. Thank you. Good luck to you too. See ya. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for calling into this podcast. Everyone that called in, I really appreciate it. Everyone that supports this podcast, listens regularly. Thank you guys so much. It does mean a lot to me. And because of that, 
one of the fun things that I love to do is I love to give stuff away. If you aren't familiar, I have a, an email list. Uh, all you have to do, go on my website, sign up. Every, pretty much every email, I give away a prize to someone. I try to gather up as much cool stuff as I can throughout the year, do giveaways. I feel very fortunate to get to test and, and use and work with a lot of great companies. And so I want to share that gear with you guys. So doing these live call-ins is a lot of fun for me because I get to give away prizes. And I thought, how cool would it be to be able to give away stuff to people listening? So if you've made it this far in the podcast, if you got all the way to the end, one of our great partners, Wilderness Athlete, has agreed to do this with me. And I don't know, we've, we've got some set aside. I think we've got up to a thousand. So however many of the first people that do it are going to be the ones that get it. We are giving away a thousand free heroes for our podcast listeners just to say thank you for listening all you have to do you just have to pay the shipping the product is yours for free that's a really awesome thing also you know you can always if you're on there and you decide hey i want to support this company or there's some things that you want you can use code live wild in there and you always get 20 percent off we also have our live wild packages on uh, wildernessathlete.com so if you want your free hero as a listener of this podcast Thank you, Wilderness Athlete, for doing this. It's a lot of fun for me. It's like everybody gets a prize. I feel like, you know, it's, it's like the, one of those, like a real talk show now, you know? It's like, you get a prize, you get a hero, you get a hero. We're just tossing heroes. So everybody that called in got it. I'm covering the shipping on theirs. And then uh, everyone else, if you want to pay your own shipping, we're giving you free hero. So in the promo code, just type in free hero, uh, F. R-E-E-H-E-R-O, spelling test <laughs> for myself. This is going to be a lot of fun. I've been dying to be able to do something for the people listening to this podcast and say, like, let's give everyone a prize. And I might even be able to talk them into more. So go on there. And it's just, well, essentially, while supplies are limited, we have them sitting there for the people that do it. Awesome. Congratulations. You are a winner. So it's probably going to be the people that listen to this podcast Thursday morning and, and get on their phone and get them. So congratulations to everyone. Uh, thank you, Wilderness Athlete, for doing that. I'm really excited to be able to do that. And until next week, I'm just going to say, get out there, live wild. Drink a free hero too. Might as well. Whatever. We're just giving stuff away. This is great. Catch you guys later.